Good morning. Good. It's great to see you guys. Hey, uh, before we dive in, just want to mention one quick thing. Uh, it's kind of heavy news, but I, I really feel like I need to tell you guys about it. Um, over the past several weeks, we've been play- praying for a young family in our church, Nick and Amanda Moore and their baby Ryland. Uh, he was born at 24 weeks. And I just want to let you know, Ryland went home to be with the Lord yesterday. And uh, on one hand, you know, on one hand, we, we praise the Lord that that he heard our prayers. God didn't turn a deaf ear to what we were asking for. Uh, right now, Ryland is healed. He is whole. He's restored. Uh, he's in the presence of his Savior, Jesus Christ. He's with the one who loves him more than his parents ever could. And so we celebrate that. But at the same time, we've got a young mom and a young dad in our church who are grieving the loss of their firstborn child. And so I just want to ask you to commit to pray for them. Um, ask God to bring Nick and Amanda to mind. And anytime he brings them to mind, would you just ask for God to give them strength and to sustain them during this difficult time? So let's commit to do that, all right? Well, look, if you got a Bible uh, or a device with some kind of app, go ahead and grab those things. We're heading back to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we're right in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments, and today we come to a turning point. I told you in week one that the Ten Commandments are really the practical expression of the two great commandments that Jesus talked about in the New Testament. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, over the last five weeks, we have covered the commandments that fall under the umbrella of love God, and today we turn the corner. For the next five weeks, we're going to talk about those that fall under the umbrella of love your neighbor as yourself. So in reality, the rest of this series is a series about relationships. For those of you that need some help in the area of relationships, you need to make sure you're here the next five weeks, all right? Here's what you need to know. God's desire is that you and I walk in freedom in our relationships. Not freedom from relationships because he created all of us to live in relationship with other people, but God wants us to know freedom in our relationships. You see, as we've been learning, God isn't some cosmic killjoy uh, out to ruin all of our joy, all of our uh, fun. He's not trying to make us miserable, and he's not the God forcing us or keeping us in awful relationships. He's a God who loves us. He's a God who has set us free as his children. And like any good loving father, he's given us some guidelines, some boundaries to live within to make sure we experience the freedom he's provided even in the way of relationships. And this makes a lot of sense when you go back to the definition of freedom we've established throughout the series. Here it is again. Freedom isn't doing what you want to do. Freedom is living how you were meant to live. Look, you're smart people, so you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, You know, like I know, that you can't just act however you want to act toward other people and have awesome relationships, right? I mean, be whatever kind of husband or wife you want to be in your marriage, you're going to have a train wreck of a marriage. Be whatever kind of kid you want to be to your parent or parent you want to be to your kid. You're going to have awful relationships with your parents or your kids. How about this? Be that neighbor that cuts your grass at 530 in the morning on a Saturday. Your neighbors will hate you, won't they? Be that neighbor that that lets your animals roam around and use the bathroom in uh, other people's yards. Not going to have great relationships with your neighbors. God has given us very specific instructions on how to relate to other people. And if we want to know true freedom, true joy in our relationships, we have to practice what he's prescribed. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into our text for today. 
If you have your Bibles open to Exodus 20, we're uh, coming to verse 13. Today, we're talking about what is one of the shortest commandments, but also one of the most complicated commandments. Here it is, commandment number six. Read it with me. You shall not murder. Now, I know some of us are thinking, well, James, that doesn't sound too complicated. Seems pretty, pretty easy, bro. Don't worry. I'll mess that up for you here in just a few minutes, all right? In the Hebrew language, there are at least eight different words for killing. Uh, one of the words refers to the execution of a criminal. One of the words refers to uh, the hunting down and killing of animals. Another word refers to soldiers being killed in battle. That word you see on the screen for murder there in verse 13, that Hebrew word isn't any of those words. This word was chosen very carefully, and it means the unlawful killing of another human being. The unlawful killing of another human being. Now, this is a broad category, okay? Uh, it obviously includes premeditated murder, but it also includes any type or any form of wrongful death. And I'll give you some examples. Uh, it includes killing someone in a fit of rage or a fit of passion. So let's just say somebody goes down to the bar, they have one too many drinks, they get in a bar fight, and before they know it, they have beat someone to death. Guess what they're guilty of? murder. They've broken commandment number six. This category, it also includes killing someone by reckless behavior. So let's say the guy that just got into the bar fight, he decides that even though he's had one too many to drink, he's getting out of there. So he gets in his car, he drives drunk, crosses the center line, hits someone, kills them. Guess what he's done? He's broken commandment number six, reckless behavior. He, he's, he's murdered someone, right? It also includes killing someone by negligence. So let's say the guy who went to the bar decided he would leave his three-year-old kid at home. He'd only be gone for an hour or two. He'd leave his kid by himself. Sure, everything's fine. While he's away, kid has an accident and dies. Guess what he's guilty of? Murder by negligence. He's broken commandment number six. Now, here's what's so interesting about this commandment to me. It doesn't matter who you are or what you walked in the door believing today, you know it's wrong, Right? Right? You could be the, the most hardcore atheist in the room. I hate God. I don't believe he exists. Don't agree with anything in the Bible. And you read verse 13 and you go, okay, well, maybe I agree with at least one thing in the Bible. That we shouldn't murder each other. It's crazy. Out of the Ten Commandments, this one commandment is almost universally accepted. But have you ever considered why? Like, why is there something inside of us that, that lets us know and makes us believe that murder is wrong? Can I just tell you the answer is bigger than, well, it's just not a nice thing to do. It's not very considerate to go around murdering people. Let me show you the answer, all right? Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. We'll have it on the screen for you. Check it out. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Here's the key part. For God made man in his own image. So that verse tells us that murder is such a serious act that it should cost the murderer his own life. And why? Because people, human beings, are created by God in his image. To murder someone is to kill what is most like God. To commit violence against another person is to commit violence against the very image of God that exists in that person. I mean, think about it like this. Uh, let's say you went to a museum. You're at the Louvre in Paris. There's beautiful artwork everywhere, and you decide to wreck the place. 
So you start pulling all the artwork down off the wall. You know, you're drawing mustaches on the people's faces, uh, punching holes through certain pieces, smashing other pieces in, uh, into smithereens, right? Never used that word in a message before. That's a, a fun word. So, but you're just blowing the place up, right? Can we just agree by destroying the artwork, you're also dishonoring the artist? And you're preventing the artist from receiving praise, honor, admiration that he is due because what you've done is is you have uh, now prevented other people from seeing what the artist has created. Hear me, the same is true of murder. The murderer, in essence, does three things. Uh, One, he disregards the sanctity of life. By his actions, he declares that life is not as valuable as God deems it to be. Secondly, he disregards the sovereignty of God. You see, only God gives life, so only God should decide when life is taken away. The person who murders another human being steps into that place of sovereignty and starts making decisions over life and death as if he is God. And then finally, the murderer robs God of glory. Just like the person who would go through that museum wrecking the artwork, the person who murders another human being is destroying a masterpiece created by God meant to reveal his his character and his nature to the world. If we really believe that people are created by God in his image for the glory of God, uh, anytime someone murders another person, they are robbing God of glory that that person they killed uh, should have been giving him. Are you with me? If you're with me, tell me yes. You with me? It's all making sense? All right, here's where it gets complicated. You ready? Here's where it gets complicated. This raises a question. If all this is true, if all that we've established is true, here's a question. Is it ever okay to take another person's life? Is it ever okay to take another person? See, I love it, man. We already got people ready to fight about this. I love it. You guys are helping my message, all right? There are people in the room, we just heard it, there are people in the room who who right now in your minds, you're going, never okay, ever, to take another person's life. Not under any circumstance, not in any scenario, it's never okay to take a person's life. Then there are others of us, we just heard it, who are thinking, uh, yes, it is okay at times. There are certain scenarios in which it's not only necessary, but it's warranted. Hear me. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you think, and it doesn't matter what I think. All that matters is what God says. And according to what God says, here's the answer. Is it ever okay to take another person's life only when taking a life preserves life? That's the biblical answer. Is it ever okay to take another person's life? Yes, but only when taking a life preserves life. And I'll walk you through some examples so we can see the difference, all right? If you're taking notes, I'll give you some stuff to write down. Number one, self-defense. Self-defense. Let's say an armed intruder walks into your house in the middle of the night. He's looking to do some serious harm. Your wife, your kids, uh, they're in the bed. Before this guy can do serious harm, you pull out your weapon and you put him down. Are you justified in taking his life? And why? Because in that moment, taking a life preserves life. Does this make sense? I'll give you another scenario. Let's say you're at the mall, you're shopping, an armed gunman walks into the mall and opens fire on innocent people. And because you're a good old Bartow County boy, obviously you're packing, right? And so (laughs) you pull out your weapon and you put him down. Are you justified in that moment in taking his life? Yes. And why? Because taking a life, taking a life preserves life. Now, I know some of us people who just think we should all get along and love everybody all the time, regardless. The question we're asking is this. Well, James, what about that turn the other cheek thing that, that Jesus talked about? I mean, I know it's somewhere in the Bible, but, but I mean, what does that mean? Does it apply to this conversation? Uh, not really. 
right? Jesus, yes, he talked about turning the other cheek in Matthew 5, 38 through 39, but he wasn't teaching in the context uh, of self-defense. He was teaching on revenge. His point in that passage was, don't seek revenge against people who've hurt you. Big difference between revenge and self-defense. Revenge is about punishment. Self-defense is about protection. I need you to understand, Jesus is not a pacifist. He's not a tree hugger. He's not a hippie who calls all of his followers to lay down as doormats, to be punching bags for people. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever tell us that we shouldn't defend ourselves. We serve a God who gives life and loves life. And the Bible, in fact, teaches us that as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to defend life, including our own. So in the case of self-defense, the answer is yes, it preserves life. Number two, capital punishment. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Capital punishment. Here's the question. Does the state have a right to execute its own citizens? Big question, right? Again, doesn't matter what we think. Let's see what God says. Romans chapter 13. Read this with me. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Now, listen to this encouraging verse. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So let's establish some things, and then we'll come back to the question, all right? In these verses, uh, Paul tells us that the God of the universe is the one who establishes governments. He's the one who establishes rulers and authorities. Just a side note here. uh, For all of you guys who are flipping out about what's coming in November, take a deep breath and relax, all right? Listen, I know it's a big deal. And we need to be really prayerful and very wise uh, when it comes to how we vote and who we vote for. But here's what we cannot forget. Whoever ends up in office in November, according to what God says, he had something to do with it. Relax. We should never look to a politician as our savior, right? Jesus is the savior. It doesn't matter who ends up as president of the United States in November. Jesus will still be alive. He'll still be on his throne. We're going to be all right, okay? Let me get back on task. I'll bring it back, all right? Bring it back. That was just, that was extra. I won't make you pay for that. So Paul tells us God, he he establishes governments and he gives uh, governments the authority that they possess. They don't have any authority outside of him. And what they're meant to do is to use their their God-given authority according to God's will and God's ways. Now, we all know that doesn't always happen, right? And we don't have to look very far to see what I mean. And that's the only time, by the way, that you and I are ever given permission by God to defy government. If our government blatantly defies God, we are given permission as followers of Jesus to defy government. But if our government is not defying God, you might disagree with some of their policies and the way they're doing things. But if they're not blatantly defying God, you are expected to come under their authority. Now, Paul tells us, we just read it, that part of the authority that God gives governments gives them the power and, and the, uh, the ability to execute 
their citizens. But look, only if the punishment fits the crime. Now, governments just can't go executing citizens for any reason they want. If you look back at the 20th century, uh, it was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. You find examples of this, guys like Adolf Hitler, guys like Chairman Mao in China, guys like Joseph Stalin, killing millions of their own people for bogus reasons. That is not okay with God. Judicial systems, justice systems should always line up with God's standards of justice. And when they don't, God's not okay with that, okay? Look, this is one of the reasons you and I need to pray for our leaders. The decision to take a person's life, even a criminal's life, it is a huge deal. It should never be made lightly, and only God can give our government officials the wisdom they need in making those decisions. We need to pray for them. Uh, Next, next, third, war. Does our government have a right to go to war? Does our government have a right to go to war? Well, the biblical answer is yes. Uh, In the Old Testament, you find the people of God going to war time and time again. You actually find war heroes celebrated, guys like David, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, among others. Now, that being said, I will tell you, as Christians, we believe that certain conditions must be met if a government is going to declare war on another country, all right? And I'll give you the conditions quickly. Here they are, five of them. One, uh, is it a legitimate government going to war? Is it a legitimate government? Like, has God established that authority that's making the decision to actually go to war, or is it a band of misfits or rebels that are just trying to usurp authority? That's first. Number two, is it for a worthy cause? Are we going to war just for the sake of going to war? Or are we going to war to protect, defend, and preserve life? Third, uh, is the force that we're using proportional to the attack? So just recently, we've seen U.S. citizens, European citizens, killed in the Middle East by terrorists. Here's the question. Is it okay for our government to drop a nuclear bomb on the region to take out a small number of terrorists? No, that's not okay. That's not okay. The force would not be proportional to the attack. Instead, we should send in some special forces to take the guys out, right? Uh, Number four, are we warring against soldiers or civilians? Huge question. God is not okay when, when countries invade other countries and kill innocent people. When we go to war, it's about soldier against soldier, not soldiers against citizens. And then finally, number five, have all other resolutions failed? Have we exhausted our options Have we done all we could do to make peace, uh, and the only thing left on the table is to go to war? Church, hear me. Another reason we need to pray for our leaders. Stephen Carter, he was a professor at Yale Law School. He said this, war is horrible and should be fought rarely and only to avoid greater horrors. Our leaders across the world need God's wisdom in making decisions on whether or not that's the case. We need to pray for them, all right? Here's where the message starts to get a little harder. And it'll only get harder from here, but stay with me, all right? Next, euthanasia or suicide? Uh, Euthanasia, meaning uh, doctor-assisted suicide, suicide when a person decides to take their own life. And listen, I'll preface this conversation by saying this. Like many of you, I've had people that I loved dearly decide to take their own life. So this is a very personal conversation for me, all right? Is this ever okay? Is it ever okay for a person to decide to end their own life? According to what the Bible teaches, the answer is no. Both of these would fall into the category of murder. And the reason goes back to what we've already established. The person who takes their own life, 
They disregard the sanctity of their own life. They deem by their actions that their life is not as valuable as God says it is. Secondly, secondly, they disregard the sovereignty of God. The person who takes their own life claims lordship over life. They step into the place of God and they make a decision that only God should make. And then finally, they rob God of glory. They forget that their lives exist for God and because of God. And by taking their own life, they rob God of honor, admiration, praise, and glory that he's deserving of. Now, this raises a couple practical questions that I've gotten uh, from a lot of people over my years in ministry, so I want to address them. The first one is this. If a person who knows Jesus takes their own life, do they lose their salvation? If a person commits suicide and and they knew Jesus, do they automatically go to hell? Well, the biblical answer is no. No. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died for the sins of the world, he died for uh, past, present, and future sins. Right? So Jesus, he died for the sins you're going to commit tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now. I just need you to know, when Jesus went to the cross, uh, he, he wasn't unclear on what sin in your life he was dying for. He knew exactly what sins he was, he was laying his life down for in your place. So for the person who would one day take their own life, Jesus knew he was paying for that before he ever went to the cross. If a person truly knows, knew Jesus and they yet committed suicide, listen to me, it's covered. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. That sin is not beyond the grace of God. I had a friend in high school, and uh, man, in high school, she was a tough girl, type of girl you didn't want to mess with. Um, she was into witchcraft, so you didn't know if she was going to cast a spell on you or something, and I'm not kidding. When I say that tough girl, a few years after high school, she met Jesus, and he radically changed her life. I mean, she became a different person. Well, for a few years, uh, we served on a church staff together. And out of nowhere, and and we still don't know why to this day, but she took her own life. And if you were to ask me today, hey, where where is she? What what happened after death? I would say, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that she's with Jesus. I saw what he did in her life. I don't know how she got to the place where she gave up on life, but I truly believe even in that moment she was welcomed into the very presence of God. A person who knows Jesus that commits this act, they don't lose anything. They don't lose salvation. Second question, uh, if you pull life support from someone, is that the same as murder? If you end life support, is that the same as murder? Uh, The biblical answer would be no. There's a big difference between ending life and ending treatment. Uh, The last church I served at, I watched a family walk through this. They had a high school son who was involved in a terrible car accident, life lighted to a local hospital, Uh, hooked up to all kind of machines in ICU. He was on life support, and it became very clear over the course of a few days that the life support would not help him to uh, experience restored life, but it would simply prolong unavoidable death. And so this family had to make a decision that I don't think any family should ever have to make, and they made the decision to end treatment. Was that murder? No. It was a family deciding to put matters of life and death back into the hands of a sovereign God. Are you with me? These are hard decisions, but according to the Bible, when it comes to ending treatment, the answer is no. It's, it's not in the same category. I'll say one thing before we move on. If you're struggling here, like if you walked into the room today and you have had thoughts of taking your own life, if you're wondering if life really matters, I just want to tell you, one, I'm glad you're here. I don't think it's a mistake you walked in the door today. God loves you. Your life matters. 
Our church loves you. Your life matters. And I would say to you, before you leave today, come talk to me, talk to one of our other pastors, talk to someone on our prayer team uh, before you go, and we would love to walk with you through whatever it is you're facing, okay? All right, here's the most difficult part of the message. Some of you are not going to like this, but we have to go here. Abortion. Abortion. Uh, I'm going to do my best to be really delicate and really compassionate here. Because I know that there are probably some women showing up to church today who have had abortions. And I know there are probably some men showing up to church today who have contributed to abortions. And please hear me. My heart in the next few minutes is not to condemn you in any way. As your pastor, I love you. And I'm grateful you're here. What I don't want to do is cause you pain for the sake of causing you pain, all right? It's not my heart. At the same time, I need to be really honest about what God says. This conversation surrounding abortion that's playing out in our culture right now, it's too important for us to miss what God says about it, okay? So just stay with me. Stay with me. Uh, According to the National Right to Life Committee, since Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, 58 million babies have been aborted in our country. That's 1.3 million babies on average each year. Here's the question. Have we murdered 58 million babies in the last 43 years? Culture would say no. Culture would say we haven't murdered them uh, because abortion isn't murder, it's a choice. And the way our culture justifies that answer is by labeling unborn children anything and everything other than what they truly are. I don't know if you saw this back at uh, the Super Bowl, but there was a Doritos commercial. I thought it was hilarious. Guy, uh, dad, he's in an ultrasound room. His wife's on the table. He's eating a bag of Doritos. And every time he'd move a chip, the baby would move, right? And then all of a sudden, the wife, she gets very angry, grabs the chip, throws it across the room, and next thing you know, boop, out comes the baby, right? (laughs) If you haven't seen it, Google it. It was hilarious. Here's what was crazy to me. After this commercial aired, an abortion rights group slammed Doritos on Twitter for humanizing fetuses. Humanizing fetuses. You see, the argument today is not one of life. It's one of personhood. Just listen to the conversation playing out about abortion right now. And here's the question that's raised. When does a fetus actually become a person with rights? And people aren't having this conversation because they're dumb. They're having this conversation because they're really smart. They know that by refusing to call an unborn child a person, that it's a whole lot easier to justify what abortion truly is. It's it's murder. It's murder. You see, here's the truth. Science tells us that life begins at conception. You can't argue that, right? I'm not saying that as a preacher. I'm saying that as a guy who studied it. Go Google it. You'll find scientific article after scientific article stating that life begins at conception. And just so you know, the Bible agrees. Isn't that awesome? Contrary to what some people think, the Bible and science don't contradict each other. Science proves what the Bible teaches. I'll show you the proof. Uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Here's what David says. He's speaking to the Lord. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. 
In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What's David saying here? Well, it's simple. He's saying life begins in the womb. Even in the earliest stages of pregnancy, a woman is pregnant with a person. It might be a little person, but it's still a person. Do you know, this is interesting, do you know that the law of our country even affirms this? This blew my mind. This last week when I was studying, uh, I came across what is called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act. I printed it out. It was established in 2004. And I just want to read a couple of statements to you. This act, by the way, was uh, put into effect to prevent unborn children from being murdered. Listen to this. If the person engaging in the conduct thereby intentionally kills or attempts to kill the unborn child, that person shall be punished for intentionally killing or attempting to kill a human being. All right, let me read another portion to you. This was crazy to me. In this section, the term unborn child means a child in utero. And the term child in utero or child who is in utero means a member of the species Homo sapiens at any stage of development. So it doesn't matter, zygote, embryo, fetus, whatever, at any stage of the development who is carried in the womb. So the law of our country says unborn child is a person. Unborn child is a human being. So if, uh, if a dad goes and beats his pregnant wife and he kills the unborn child, he's a murderer. Yet somehow we have convinced ourselves that abortion isn't murder. We've turned it into a woman's right issue. I mean, if you listen to these conversations, here's what you'll inevitably hear someone say. Uh, it should be a woman's right to choose what she does with her body. And look, I don't disagree with that. I would just argue that the woman did choose what to do with her body when she got into bed with another man. But at the point she becomes pregnant, can we just agree her body doesn't solely belong to her any longer? It's not just hers. There's a living human being living inside of it. If you're a parent, you get this. Being a parent is about sacrificing for the sake of your kids, isn't it? Being a parent is about giving up certain rights for the sake of your children. And when does that sacrifice begin? In the earliest stages of pregnancy. Now, let me just say this. Please don't tune out. I don't want you to miss this. Hear me, because I know what some of you are thinking. James, what about those tough cases? Like, how do we make these calls when a woman is raped? How do we make these calls when, when incest has been committed? Like, what do you do when the mother's life is in danger? Here's how I'd answer that. I think first we have to agree that those cases are, are the rarity, not the rule. Those cases don't make up 58 million abortions, right? We have to be willing to address the real issue here. And I would say as followers of Jesus, we need to come alongside those women that are involved in those tough cases and walk with them in a prayerful, loving, compassionate manner to get them the help they need. That's how I would answer it, all right? Listen, um, I would imagine at this point in the message, there are some of us in the room who are feeling pretty good about ourselves. For the past five weeks, we felt awful because we're like, dang, I've broken every commandment. But we've gotten to this one, and you're like, sweet, haven't killed anybody. Showed up on the right day. Well, listen, before you get too excited, let me tell you that when it comes to commandment six, uh, there is more than meets the eye. And many of us who don't think we've broken this commandment, we've actually broken it. 
If you study the Ten Commandments, uh, you'll find that eight out of the ten are written in negative form. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, which implies that there is a positive to each command. Don't do this means that there is, in fact, something we should do. And I'll show you the negative and the positive for commandment number six. Here it is. The negative, don't murder. The positive, show mercy. Show mercy. Here's what it means. I'll make it real simple. And if you're taking notes, here's some stuff to write down. This means that you and I, as followers of Christ, we can actually break commandment number six by failing to show mercy to those in need. By failing to show mercy to those whose life is in danger. Listen to what uh, Martin Luther says on this point. He says, this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor, or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you've let him freeze to death. If anyone suffers hunger, uh, if you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in similar peril and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you've killed him. It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. Heavy, right? He's reminding us that God tells us as his people that we have a responsibility to act for those who can't act for themselves. We have a responsibility to speak for those who have no voice, to feed those who are starving, to clothe those who are naked, to give drink to those who are thirsty. And if we as the people of God refuse to do that, guess what we are? We're murderers. We have a God who loves life and hates death. So much so that he came off the throne of heaven and died to overcome death. And as his people, we are called to be sources of life for those in need. A refusal to show mercy in this regard is a blatant and and just obvious defiant of this commandment we're walking through today. But secondly, here's what it means. Showing mercy means that, that we also break commandment number six when we commit what John Calvin called murder of the heart. What's that mean? Murder of the heart. Sounds kind of weird. What does it mean? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, here's what Jesus says. You've heard it said, uh, that it was said to those of old, and here it is, sixth commandment, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, what Jesus does next is this. He doesn't change the commandment. He clarifies its actual meaning, okay? Because there was a lot of people back then who, who were like, oh, sweet, haven't killed anybody, but Jesus is saying, no, there's more to it than that. He goes on. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Here's what Jesus is saying. God doesn't only hate murder, he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, bitterness, jealousy, revenge. God says it's all in one category. It's all in one category. By this standard, please hear me, by this standard, it is just as evil for you to hate the person who's had the abortion as the act of abortion itself. By this standard, it's just as evil for you to hate the murderer as the act of murder itself. Because this is the tension of following Jesus. We have a responsibility to call sin what it is while at the same time showing unconditional love and mercy to those caught in sin. And if we refuse to do that, guess what we're in? 
We're in sin. We're in sin. So here's a question I have, and we're almost done. Who are you mad at? Who are you mad at? Who do you have uh, hatred, bitterness, anger stored up against? Who do you find yourself insulting, uh, talking bad about? Who are you posting angry Facebook statuses about these days? And yes, hear me, politicians and celebrities, they count. They're living human beings. Look, I'm asking because I want to make it real simple, really practical. Here's what Jesus is teaching. Your anger against that person makes you just as guilty as if you walked out of the room today and physically took their life. Heavy, huh? So now that we're all feeling really depressed and bad about ourselves, let me give you good news. You ready? Here's the good news. Jesus forgives murderers. How incredible is that? Jesus forgives murderers. Some of us might be sitting there going, James, are you sure, bro? Yes, I'm sure. How do I know? Well, it's simple. Luke 23, 34, as Jesus is being murdered in our place for our sins, guess who he prays for? He prays for his murderers. And he doesn't pray, Father, kill them. He prays, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, I don't know what you're guilty of today. You know, God knows. I don't know what decisions you've made that you regret, that you're still beating yourself up for. But here's what I can tell you. If, in fact, you are in Jesus Christ, there is no shame or condemnation coming from him. You might always regret choices you've made. You might always regret things you've done. But Jesus has set you free. I believe there's some of us in the room who still need to be set free. Like you walked in today and and you know you're guilty. Maybe you haven't taken a person's life physically, but you don't have a heart for other people. A lot of anger, a lot of bitterness. You're still living the same old beat up, tired life you've been living for years now. And you're desperate for something to change. Can I just tell you that the God of life wants to give you new life today? The God who's defeated death wants to give you eternal life today. It doesn't matter what you have done, who you are, no sin in your life, including murder, is beyond the grace of God. Isn't that beautiful? So look, here's what I want to do. Um, right now, I, I want to give you a chance, if you need to put your faith in Jesus, to put your faith in him. So let's just bow our heads all over the room. Just get along with the Lord. And if you're that person who's here and, and you know there has never been a moment in your life when you have cried out to God and put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you've never trusted in his death and his resurrection. You've never asked for the forgiveness of your sins for new life and eternal life. But you know you need to do it today. I, I want to help you. Prayer team, I want to go ahead and invite you to get out of your seats and to come to the front of the room. As, as they're coming, if that's you, if you need to put your faith in Jesus, just say something like this to God in prayer. Say, God, I need you. God, I need you. God, I confess today that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. God, I need new life. I need the hope of eternal life with you. And I believe Jesus can give it to me. God, I put my trust and my faith in him. I believe that he died on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. I believe that he rose from the dead so that I could be freed from death and know both new and eternal life. Today, I say yes to Jesus. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you just prayed that with me, would you just do me a favor? Would you just put your hand up? Would you just throw your hand up? Nobody looking around. I see hands going up. I see a hand down here in the front. Just throw your hand up. Keep it up. Just throw it up real high. Our prayer team, there's a young man right down here in the front. Our prayer team's going to come. They're going to put something in your hand. 
We're going to give you just a minute. If you're, if you're that person, throw it up real high so we can see it. I see another hand right here in the middle. Anybody else a hand in the back? Hand over here on the side. Hand over here on the side. Just keep it up real high. Just keep it up real high. Listen, for the rest of us, for the rest of us, for those of us who know Jesus, maybe you're sitting here and and you're just reeling over things you've done, choices you've made, sins you've committed. Your heart's breaking over your refusal to show mercy to others. Or maybe you know there's someone in your life that, that you've wronged and you need their forgiveness. Or someone has wronged you and you've been unwilling to forgive. And you know today that that you've got to give it back to God. You've got to let him move in your life so that you can truly walk in freedom. In the next few moments, our prayer team, they're going to be down front. We'd love to pray for you if we can serve you in that way. Uh, If you want prayer and if you just want to come and kneel at the front of this room, we'd love to lay a hand on you and just pray over you. But let's not waste this time. Let's not miss out on what God wants to do in our lives and in this place. God, would you just move in power? God, let your spirit work freely. God, would you do in us what only you can do? Lord, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.